Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. I think that as a society, we've lost some of the value of confrontation. We've lost some of the value and the meaning and the purpose of contradiction. And what I mean by that is that we've completely devalued and degraded healthy opposition to our views to always somehow mean ugly antagonism. And I think one of the reasons why we've become so sensitive to this is because of the internet mob, right? At this point, with all of our lives being, so much of our time being spent on social media, you know, we're almost jealous of people that aren't on social media. Because we spend our time there, but anything you say and do can be used against you and will be used against you. People are offended about the slightest thing. We have to think so carefully even about the words that we use and the, and the photos that we post here from Anchor Church because someone will criticize. Someone will have something to say. And you can ask my staff, there are days when I'm like, no, that's okay, let me graciously explain to them, you know, what's happening. There's other days that I don't take it so much and I just tell them it's okay, they can find another church. It's okay, we won't miss you, it's fine. You're like, you know, we, we release you in Jesus' name. But we've become so sensitive by the, the internet mob, you know, you type something and all the trolls come creeping out of the digital woods just to smash you with their keyboards, feast on your carcass. This is what it feels like. So we're, so anybody that contradicts us we're like, how dare you? How dare you? This is my truth. I can speak my truth, and this is my life, and this is what I've decided. How, how dare anybody speak against me? And we've lost an art here. One of the greatest books written uh, by a man called G.K. Chesterton, which is the guy who C.S. Lewis, if you've ever read C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest Christian writers of all time, wrote books like Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis was a young man sitting in a trench in World War I. And while sitting in that trench, he was reading The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton. And to this day, C.S. Lewis has credited G.K. Chesterton's writings as being the thing that awakened him to the gospel. And in all of his incredible writings, C.S. Lewis said he could only ever add water to the wine of G.K. Chesterton. This is how incredible this writing is. And one of G.K. Chesterton's most famous books is called Heretics, where he personally addressed people like Bernard Shaw and, and other writers that were, that were writing certain hypotheses on life and meaning and truth. He personally wrote, and he said that he doesn't argue with people that he doesn't respect. And so there was an, an art to his writing where he says, I'm arguing with this viewpoint because I so respect the author of the viewpoint. And that's where healthy discourse comes from. That's where conversation comes from. That's where dialogue comes from. But in our world, as a result of critical theory and identity politics, we're not having conversations anymore. We're not having discussions anymore. Everyone's offended. So it shuts the door on us being able to engage with one another. We've become, in essence, allergic to confrontation. And we view anybody who disagrees with us as the enemy. But in doing so, we lose a vital part of the journey. 
Here's how the book of Proverbs puts it. Proverbs 27, verse 6 in the Amplified Bible. By the way, we're, we're starting a series today, a sub-series uh, called Sex and Pride. Uh, and this is because as we move into 1 Corinthians 5, Paul now begins to address their cultural views on sex and on relationships and on marriage and on gender and on all of these things that they're taking their cues from the world for. And Paul begins to speak to them and in many ways contradict them and Proverbs 27 verse 6 in the Amplified says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. When a friend wounds you, it's often because they're being faithful friends. It's not because they're the enemy. It's not because they hate you. It's not because they try to put you down. Who corrects out of love and concern. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful because they serve his hidden agenda. Rather the faithful wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy that encourages you on the way of destruction. One of my best friends and co-elders here at Anchor Church is Will, who you heard from earlier today. Will and I have been friends and in ministry together for about 10 years now. Um, and Will is absolutely the best at this. In these past 10 years, no one has contradicted me more than Will. And it was like from day one. The very first conversation we had, I was coming onto a church staff that he was already a part of, and I told him that I didn't really want a PC because I've always worked with Mac. And, you know, he said, okay, we'll see what we can do. And that's like Will's trick. He's so nice about it. He makes you believe that you're hurt. He's like, I, I can see how you would feel that way but then does nothing to actually help you. <laughs> this is his trick, watch out for it. And Will contradicts me regularly as I'm making decisions and as we're making decisions, as I'm you know, casting vision, as I'm throwing things out there, Will would say, yeah, I could, I could see that, I think that's good. And then he would kind of tilt and say, so do you think that it wouldn't possibly also be, you know, and you just like add another little thing there. And sometimes he's 100% right, but I don't want to discuss who's right at that point. <laughs> so I'll just say something like, Will, we can talk about that later. But right now, just be angry with me, you know. <laughs> or right now, just feel with me, then later we'll get, I'll calm down, then we can talk about what's going on. And he's so good at this. He's constantly vetting my thinking, not because he doesn't care, but because he genuinely does. And I trust him in that. A little bit of pushback helps us keep our balance, right? Hey, Will, could you just come up here for a moment this morning? Just one second. So you just stand in this spot here and just stand with your feet together that you can just face me and then just lean forward. If I'm a friend of Will's and I see that he's falling, sometimes I've got to push back, right? If I left him, he would fall. This reminds me of trust falls. Anybody ever do trust falls? Have you ever seen the one where the guy closes his eyes and everybody's ready to catch him? And then he accidentally falls forwards instead of backwards? <laughs> Trust smashed. Thanks, Will. Let's give Will a round of applause. That was just a... But how many of you know that it is so easy for us to get off balance in life? It is so easy for us to develop the wrong ideas, the wrong picture, the wrong vision, the wrong thinking. And sometimes what we need is somebody that's going to give some opposition. Why? Because it keeps us upright because it keeps us standing tall, because it prevents us from falling. And that is why, even as I was putting pressure on Will as he's leaning over, it might feel like pressure, 
but ultimately it's helping him. Ultimately, it's keeping him upright. Now, I'm not saying that you should go out and pridefully argue with everyone, okay? That's not what I'm saying. And especially not with me, all right? You can talk to Will if you have any problems. So, so I'm not saying let's go out and just argue with people because people do this and, and oftentimes it's done with such a poor spirit. It's such a negative spirit. They go out and they, you know, especially the, the theologians, the wannabe theologians that go out and it's like, I just have an issue with, with, I don't care. Talk to somebody else. You know, like you get people that, that are constantly like that. Don't be that guy. Don't be that woman. Don't be somebody that's nitpicking. But when you are invested in a journey and a friendship and a relationship and committed to a place, then it's, that's the correct way to bring that opposition. But from a personal point of view, can we appreciate the people that help us to dive deeper into truth? This happens in that context of friendship and trust, not internet mob mentality of drive-by typings, right? You're not gonna change anybody's life with a drive-by typing. You're not gonna set anybody straight. It happens through real relationship. So as we get into this short sub-series in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, specifically dealing with sex and marriage, let me ask you this question today. Are you ready to be contradicted? Are you okay with being contradicted this morning, with getting some pushback on your views? Not from me. Not my views. The words of Jesus. Is that something that you accept still in your life? I mean, is Jesus Lord of our lives? Is, is the word of God the word of God, or do we just kind of accept the part that says, oh, you're saved, and we don't accept the parts that say, and here's how you should walk. In the same way that you were saved, you should walk. It's like, by the grace of God, we're saved, and then we walk according to that grace. We allow that grace to save us. What many of us do is it's like if I had a big sword here, I don't have one at home, but if I had one, I would have brought it because what many of us do is that we cut Jesus in two. We want the Jesus that saves us. We don't want the Jesus that purifies us. We don't want the Jesus that, that strengthens us, that takes us on a journey. And we put our foot down and we say, I will not be contradicted in my views, not even by Jesus. That's an attitude. That's an approach. That was the problem with the church in Corinth. Pride. It's pride. That's why we've called this series Sex and Pride. Because there's a pride that says, I won't be told how to live my life. I won't be told how to approach this area of my life, not even by Jesus. This is exactly the same pride displayed by the church in Corinth. As we get into 1 Corinthians 5, uh, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to just jump to verse 6. Can I just pause to say, I love being here again. <laughs> it is so good just to be preaching to people again. I'm so sick of cameras. All right, side note. Now let's go, 1 Corinthians 5 and verse six. Paul almost immediately as he begins talking about sex and sexuality and the things that the church in Corinth is struggling with, he almost immediately gets to the heart of the matter, which is really what we should do when we're talking about areas of sinfulness or areas of temptation is what is happening in the heart because ultimately that's what God cares about he cares about what's happening in your soul he cares about what's happening in your heart he's not condemning Jesus is not condemning people for their sin he came to save you from that sin not to condemn but to save and so he's addressing things that are happening in our hearts 
So he immediately gets to the heart of the matter. And contrary to what most believe when they read 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is actually, more than anything else, addressing the attitude of the church itself. More than, more than his, his anger about sin, he's angry about how the church is handling the sin. He's, it's not that he's okay with sin, but he's even less okay with how okay Corinth is about it. <laughs> Does that make sense? He's not okay with sin. He's just not happy about the fact that the church is okay with sin. That the church allows people to go down that road. Because as we guide and guard and lead the flock of Jesus, as we encourage and strengthen, we lead people to a place of health. We lead people to a place of, of wholeness. That's part of our jobs, is to help you be whole so that you can do the work of the ministry. It's to equip you and strengthen you. I'm a dad, I've got three boys. And if my boys are going wrong in some area, I'm not just gonna stand by and go, no, that's okay, you, you keep going. What loving person, what loving parent, what loving God would do such a thing? No, if I see a behavior in my kids, my kids have now gotten into woodwork. I don't know how that happened. I don't know who introduced them to it, but I wake up on a Saturday morning and I hear them going through my tool drawer. I've had to stop, start like locking the garage because they're going through the tool drawer, walking in with a grinder at 6 a.m. in the morning going, Dad, can you help us cut this wood? <laughs> now imagine if I'm like, no, that's cool. Plug in the grinder, do it yourself. Make something. You know what they make? Weapons. It's even worse. I've got like a hundred toy knives at home, wooden knives. They're like, they want to get it sharp. I'm like, no sharper than that. We've got like a bluntness limit or a sharpness limit at this point. Like, imagine if I just said, no, it's okay. Use the grinder, make the weapons, run around, you know, stab each other. <laughs> Would I be a loving father? And Paul, in the same sense, he's not okay with the fact that the church isn't helping people. He's not okay with it. Not for all the cultural influence in the world, he's not okay with it. So he is addressing the church, and this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 5 or 6. He says, your boasting is not good, i.e., your pride is not a good thing. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Don't you know that if you start entertaining these thoughts and these attitudes that they corrupt the reality of God's grace in people's lives? That people start disconnecting from God, that they start going on a journey that leads them into destruction personally in their own hearts. And I'm not even talking about necessarily being saved or unsaved, Right? We know that if your faith is in Jesus, even if you go completely wayward, unless you outright reject Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you're saved. So this is not about that. This is about the health of your soul and your life and your future and your relationships. In essence, the church in Corinth claimed to be so liberated and so sure of themselves that they re regarded their own views on sex and sexuality and marriage as greater than God's views. That's pride. No one can tell us what to do. If we wanna live with our boyfriends before we get married, then that's what we're gonna do. If we wanna have sex with different people from time to time, then that's what I'm gonna do. If, if I feel like watching pornography every now and again, then that's fine, that's my decision and I'll do it. 
The city of Corinth actually had a motto. People don't realize this when they read the scripture, but Paul mentions the motto. And this is the motto of the city of Corinth wasn't uh, like, um, like we have in South Africa, like, you know, the jewel of the Cape or the place of gold or how's it my brew? I think that's Durban's one. Um, you know, it was actually all things are permissible. It's funny how people quote that scripture. It was the motto of the city of Corinth. All things are permissible. Imagine having a city or a town or a village or a place where your motto basically is come and do what you want here. We're liberated. We're free in their own minds, their own definition of freedom. So Paul actually mentions this motto in his letter in 1 Corinthians 10, a little bit later on, 10 verse 23. We'll get to it again later, but this morning I wanted to just highlight this. Here it is. All things are lawful. Come to Corinth. Here you can do what you want. So Paul says, yes, all things are permissible, but he adds this, but not all things are helpful. Yeah, you can do what you want. You'll still be saved. Jesus will still love you, blah, 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 but it's not gonna help you. He says it again. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. In other words, some break down. Well, I can do what I want. I don't need to listen to the pastor. I don't need to... You definitely can. I'm not here to control anybody. But that may mean that you're destroying yourself at the same time. And so hopefully you can hear my heart this morning in wanting to give you some healthy opposition to the views that have been prescribed to us by our world. And if this is an area that you struggle in, you're not condemned. You're not, you're not gonna, you're welcome. But we wanna help you. We wanna speak God's truth to you. We believe that God's grace is enough to set you on a path of something that's better. And you know why it's important? Because we have kids. Whether they're our own kids or kids that we're serving in kids' ministry or kids around us, friends, whatever. But we're setting an example for a generation and we wanna make sure that it's the right one. One of the issues with pride is that it's actually devaluing you at the same time. People think that, that we often think that people are prideful because, because they value themselves so highly. The truth is, oftentimes people are prideful because they're actually masking insecurity. And so when we are prideful and we don't accept humility, we actually devalue ourselves because we're saying, my life doesn't matter enough for me to receive wisdom. I, I don't wanna hear anybody contradict me. I just wanna do what I wanna do. You're not, that's not a good way to value yourself. That's not a good way to think about yourself. Humility says, I think my life is important enough that I should hear wisdom about how I should live it and can live it by the grace of God. And so oftentimes this pride is undergirded by insecurity. So in Corinth, they actually had this belief. It was kind of a philosophical belief out of Greek mythology, which was this idea of a king of Corinth named Sisyphus. And according to you know, Homer's Odyssey, Sisyphus was this really mischievous uh, you know, god who, who at the same time operated with general trickery and always got away with it, uh, escaped death um, you know, uh, twice, defeated death twice. And, um, and so Zeus at one point in Greek mythology gets a hold of Sisyphus and punishes him eternally. And so if you read Homer's Odyssey, 
you actually find this quote about the king of Corinth, this, this city that, that Paul is writing to. Now, it's not even necessarily that the people in, in, Corinthians, in Corinth actually necessarily believed that that was a literal king, but it was a philosophy. It was an illustration of a philosophy of living. So here's the quote from Homer's Odyssey. He writes, Then I witnessed the torture of Sisyphus as he wrestled with a huge rock with both hands. Bracing himself and thrusting with hands and feet, he pushed the boulder uphill to the top. But every time, as he was about to send it toppling over the crest, its sheer weight turned back, and once again, towards the plain, the pitiless rock rolled down. So once more, he had to wrestle with the thing and push it up, while the sweat poured from his limbs and the dust rose high above his head. What does that speak of? This is the king of Corinth. Futility. There's nothing in life that really has value. All we're doing is pushing a rock up a hill to watch it roll down again and then pushing the same. Isn't that describes some people's like Monday to Sunday, right? Well, what is there in life? And this is the attitude of people that give no regard to their to healthy sexuality. I'm just pushing a rock up a hill, watching it roll down. There's nothing in life, there's nothing eternal, there's nothing more, there's nothing bigger. So let me just have the fun I can have while I have it, the fun. Let me just do what I want right now because it makes me feel better. Futility in our thinking and in our minds leads to this kind of of devaluing of ourselves, devaluing of our relationships. One of the reasons I think we allow ourselves to be ruled by our sexual desires or at very least develop an attitude of nonchalance towards it is that we don't value life highly enough. We don't value ourselves. We don't care enough about the life God has given us and our body and our relationships that we've been blessed with. People talk about cheap sex. And let me tell you that there is no such thing as cheap sex. There's no such thing as casual, inconsequential sex. It is a spiritual, supernatural, sacred thing created by God to bond a husband and wife together where two become one flesh. But what we can do is approach it cheaply. What we can do is devalue our own selves, our own souls, our own bodies, and use sex as a cheap tool rather than embracing what God has meant for it to be a covenant-forming sacred act between a husband and a wife. We ultimately undervalue ourselves by doing this. Not all things are helpful. You are worth more than that. And that's ultimately what Paul is trying to say to the church in Corinth. In the next chapter, he makes this clear. Like, this is your attitude. This is, this is gonna help you. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18, he says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his or her own body. You sin against your own body. The Bible says that when you sin sexually, you cause war to be waged within the members of your body. There is a a tension, there is a wrestle, and for all of us that have failed in any way in this area, we'll know that tension, we'll know that feeling. And that's what God has given us the grace to move beyond, where we can have healthy sexual lives. Some people don't even know 
how to experience sex or sexuality without experiencing guilt at the same time. Let me tell you, that's not God's plan for you. That's not God's plan for your life. He wants you to experience the kind of sex that is free, the kind of sex that is free of guilt and condemnation and stress and tension that is so much more, so sacred and so whole as opposed to the versions of it that our world has created where we're wrestling with that tension within us all the time. It says we should flee. That word there is fugo, which means to run to safety, facing an imminent attack. In other words, when you're faced with sexual temptation, run to safety because your soul is under threat in that moment. I heard a psychologist, Christian psychologist, speak on this once, and he was saying most cravings last seven minutes. Just distract yourself for seven minutes, go do something else for 10 minutes, and you'll probably find that you're fine after that if there's temptation. Because we wrestle with this, right, church? I'm not coming from a high place, right? This is stuff I've wrestled with in my own life. I'm not speaking down to you from some height. This is real. And so there is temptation. There are these things, but what can we do? We can do practical things. We can believe spiritual things, but it starts with having an attitude of humility. It reminds me of Joseph in Genesis 39, verse 6 to 12. How great is the story? If you've never read the Old Testament, I'm pretty sure after you hear the story, you're going to go out and read the Old Testament. It's like, that is better than any soapy, any series I've ever watched, right? So you've got Joseph, and it tells us in Genesis 39, verse 6, Joseph was a well-built. He was well-built and handsome. It's a good-looking guy, Joseph. He's rising up the ranks, you know. He's got upward mobility. He's making some coin. He's working for some important people, and he's well-built. You know, some guys just have it all. And he's handsome. After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. She notices Joseph and she wants some of that. She says, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me. My master's been good to me, except you, because you are his wife. Joseph understands covenant. He understands the sanctity of marriage. He understands the importance of what sex and sexuality mean within a covenant like that. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, I'm pretty sure after that moment, she was like, oh, Joseph's even better than I thought. If I wanted him before, now I really want him because he doesn't want me. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Flee sexual immorality. That's a perfect picture. How many of you have been in that situation? You're cozying up on the couch. Netflix is on. You've had a great date. You're chilling. And things get a little frisky. How many of you have jumped up and raced and ran out of the house, jumped in your car and sped down the road? 
Obviously, all of you have done that in order to <laughs> honor the Lord with your body. But that's the attitude of scriptures to say, let's stay away with that kind of intensity from things that may harm us. Joseph valued his integrity, valued his relationship with God, valued marriage, valued his master. He wanted to honor his leader and his integrity meant more to him. The call of God on his life meant more to him than a cheap thrill. He didn't want to sacrifice that. In that context, Joseph's role in the life and the story of Israel cannot be overstated. Joseph would eventually become the head of all of Egypt, only second to, to Pharaoh himself. And this position that God gave Joseph empowered him to, to save from the, the, a seven-year famine the entire household of Israel. And as his brothers and his father were able to move into Egypt where there was plenty. And they eventually became the 12 tribes of, of, of Israel. And, and through them, God eventually brought the Messiah through the tribe of Judah. Joseph could never have known how important that decision was that he made right there. In essence, if he had gone awry and Israel was lost, what would have happened to us? And so we never know how these decisions that we can make sometimes even light, lightly in, an, in, an, in a moment, can ultimately have an effect on our call, can ultimately have an effect on our future. But the people of Corinth didn't value the call of God, not enough. To them, life was a futile exercise, just pushing a rock up a hill to watch it roll down again. So why not do what we want? Paul, indirectly contradicting the church in Corinth here, is actually lovingly calling them to a bigger vision, lovingly reminding them of their identity. This is an appeal to a wayward son or a wayward daughter. And at the same time, he's addressing the church saying, you've got to talk up about this church. Could you just for a moment appreciate the position of the pastors in this church? When we encounter people that, that won't hear the scriptures. And at the same time, we love you. And we'd love to address things with you. But we're also worried about offending you and derailing your journey at the same time. But if we don't do it, we might get that same kind of scathing rebuke from our Lord and Savior as Paul gave to his church. And so sometimes we're gonna speak up not because we're condemning, because in this church, you know, we're gospel-centric. We're not here to condemn anybody. We're here to see people saved. But as we help you on your journey, allow us the room to speak into your life. Allow some healthy contradiction. We're not gonna tell you what to do, but we may introduce some new thoughts for you and some new truths. To Paul, it's a serious matter. And so he's actually speaking more than just about sex and, and, and sinfulness. He's speaking to the value that the church is placing on themselves, their identity and calling. Here's an example, and I'm almost done this morning. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 2. This is how he starts the chapter. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. The unbelievers don't even do this. They don't even think this is okay. But the church had become so prideful that they've even moved, they've even out-sinned people that aren't believers. 
For a man has his father's wife. The fact that it calls it his father's wife probably means it wasn't his, his mother, but a, you know, an, an, an additional wife, or uh, it could be um, you know, a, a stepmom or whatever, like a mother-in-law, something like that. But here's the real issue. So there's real serious sin in this church. Not this church, we believe, but Corinth. <laughs> but this is what Paul says. He says to the church, and you are arrogant. There's some real issues here, which is fine. We can work through it. But let's not be arrogant about it. Church, ought you not rather to mourn? Yes, people are going to mess up. Every single person in this room will still commit sin in some way or another in the remaining days of your life. And we are not here to condemn. The only issue is, is if, that we, if we cannot be humble enough to be able to come before God, admit our faults, receive His grace, and move forward. If we're not sorrowful over the sin. Paul goes on, he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And, and he actually says something interesting that I don't get, have time to get into theologically. But just in case you go home and you read this, Paul goes on to say, hand that person over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. Why? so that their soul may be saved. And what he's saying by that, that's in some intense language. But what Paul is saying is, for that person, and he's not talking about somebody that messed up sexually and came to the church and said, guys, I'm so sorry, I messed up. Can you pray for me? Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other and, and you'll be healed. He's not talking about somebody that's approaching this in humility, that's messed up, that has the right attitude. He's talking about somebody who's proud about his sexual sin and is influencing others to do the same. And, and, and Paul says, Remove that person from the community. Let them go their way. Let them go live that life. Hand them over to that way of thinking so that they can run into the end of themselves, so that they can see the destruction, so that they can taste the hurt that comes from that and understand that the Scriptures are not trying to control him, but trying to help him so that he will come back and his soul will be saved. Sometimes you're going to say, okay, if that's what you believe, then go and try it. Let us know how we can help when you've gotten to that place. And that's what Paul's ultimately saying. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7 to 8, my last scripture this morning. He says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There's a lot that I can unpack in that, but he takes the church back to an understanding that Jesus died on the cross to deliver us from sin, from death, from the things that would destroy us. We, before then, we were just controlled by sin. But now, by God's grace, Romans tells us, sin has no dominion of, over you. You no longer have to obey your sinful desires. We've got the grace to overcome sin in our lives, the power and the you know, the power of sin in our lives, not just the penalty. And so he's saying, Jesus died. The, the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So let's not go back. Do not give rulership and ownership of your body and of your future and of your relationships back to the thing that Jesus died to save you from. 
the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So let's celebrate the festival, not by going back to sin, not by going back to the law. The strength of sin is in the law. This is not about saying, okay, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna do this. It's not a rule. But let us go back to an understanding of the fact that Jesus has set us free by his grace so that we can live a higher calling. Don't go back to slavery, he's saying. After Passover, after the Passover lamb was slaughtered in the Old Testament, the houses of the people of Israel had to be free of leaven for seven days. That seven represents completeness. For seven days, let it be free from, in other words, when Jesus has died for you, don't look for your fulfillment in other things. You have what you need and you have it in Jesus. This is not always an easy journey, but God leads us in it. God's heart is to deliver us from sin through his grace. So sin will, have no, will no longer have dominion over you and you will not be mastered by anything. And one of the translations of 1 Corinthians 10 that I read earlier, Paul actually says, all things are permissible, but I will not be mastered by any of them. And that's what this comes down to. God wants us to be truly free. Here's the good news. If you have messed up in this area, and I'd say the majority of us probably have at some time or another, God is for you. He always has been and He always will be. And He's here to help you. He's here to help you heal. He's here to restore. He's here to redeem. He's here to renew. Jesus didn't condemn the woman caught in adultery. He says, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's the whole picture. There's no condemnation, but receive God's grace and and hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. So let's receive God's grace today. God's grace to be forgiven if we need that and to stay true in our walk with Him. Amen? Why don't you stand with me this morning as we pray?